So what could be better than one sermon? <laughs> two sermons. What could be better than two sermons? Three sermons? Do I hear four? Anyone? Four? Tonight, six sermons. Six. Set your watch. Okay. So, but real short ones. Uh, Jeremy and I wanted to spend this month on Sunday evening talking about peacemaking, and he started that off last week. And tonight, we're just going to kind of tag team on some of our uh, practical ways to help make peace. I'll just warn you up front, nothing works perfectly. There is no magic peace button that we can teach you how to push. But a lot of things help, and so we're going to talk about some things that we know uh, from personal experience or from research that do work uh, and can help things. I, I want to start with a question. How many of you... No, I'll ask a different question. What is the worst song to have stuck in your head? I have two that I really have personally experienced and hated both of them. What did you have? I'll fly away and it gets stuck in your head? Oh, you don't like the song? <laughs> Okay. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Anybody else have one that gets stuck in your head? Or the worst one to get stuck in your head? I am grateful. I've only heard that once, so I don't know it well enough, but it seems like a super earworm. Yeah. Baby shark, which is really awful. Um so I spent, like, it felt like a day and a half singing over and over again about a guy who lives in a pineapple under the sea. And it just kept, it kept looping and it kept looping. It was terrible. That one and, for some reason, Elizabeth and I, uh, the Veggie Tales Water Buffalo song. Uh, and I'm, then that one got stuck in my head for, huh? It's a good song, but not after, you know, eight or nine hours. It's, it starts to wear thin. Um, Yodi gave me a piece of information. I think this is true. I haven't verified it separately. So this is all uh, footnoting Yodi, and you can talk to her about this. But she said that she, uh, she had read that what's going on when you get an earworm is that your brain wants to finish the circuit. It wants to go ahead and complete the song. And that typically you'll just sing the same phrase or two or three phrases over and over again. And you could actually get rid of it by completing the circuit, going ahead and finishing the song, singing it to its end, if you know it. Unfortunately, my problem is I often don't know them. Uh, And you can wrap things up. Okay, that has nothing to do with peacemaking, but it does relate to this first technique. Uh, If you are in a conversation that seems to be going around and around and around. You're not making any headway towards a resolution, but both sides are getting angrier and angrier. That's the same phenomenon. And you can break that circuit by asking more questions. James says, be slow to speak, be quick to listen, right? And this is a discipline that will help you to do those two things. To to not get angry, to be slow to speak, and to be quick to listen. 
by asking more questions. How many of you have had a conversation like what I'm describing, where it feels like both sides just keep saying the same thing, but maybe getting louder? Maybe with different words, but it keeps being the same thing over and over and over again. One theory about what's happening, I think I've talked about this before here, one theory about what's happening there is that if I tell you something is really important to me, and you don't, uh, I don't feel like you understood it because you come back with something else that seems to be off the point. You don't understand what I said, uh, and, and, and you do the same thing. And both of us keep saying the same things over and over again, wanting to, if, maybe if I get loud enough or angry enough, the other person will finally hear me, right? You can short circuit that by asking questions. And in particular saying, okay, okay, let me make sure that I've heard you. Is this what you're saying? And then repeat back the words that they have said or repeat back the ideas that they've expressed and say, now, is that close to what you were saying? And if they say, no, you totally misunderstood, well, then explain it again. And, I, and, and, and keep doing that, keep asking those questions until you can repeat what they're saying to their satisfaction. Now, this is where the slow to get angry part comes in because you may feel like they're really misinformed, and they don't understand, and they really are misinterpreting your motives and all kinds of other things. And that's where you kind of need to put that to the side, right? In this stage, when you're asking questions, it is all about just trying to get that information out of them. Am I understanding what you're saying? This actually weirdly works in very high-stakes conversations, you know, interpersonal conversations with somebody you're really intimate with, Oddly enough, it works a bit with political discussions and it works a bit with religious discussions, just proving that you can hear what the other person is saying. And you're not just, you know, standing there waiting to say your part, uh, just waiting for them to stop talking. So ask more questions. That's one of the ways that we can maybe make a movement towards peace. And now I hand it off to sermon number two, Jeremy Beller. Okay, that's a great lead-in to the second thing. Uh, if you ask more questions, one of the things when you're working with peace or trying to bring about peace is perception shifting. Perception shifting. Here's what I mean by that. Have you noticed we live in a culture where we do not have to think through someone else's eyes? What news channel do you watch? Huh. Oh, it's the one that agrees with me, obviously. Uh, you get on social media, and if someone says something you don't like, what do you do? You block them or you unfriend them. And what we have done is we've created what we call in some circles echo chambers, where we simply seek out people who agree with us so that when we find ourselves in a situation where someone has a different perception, we don't know what to do. Now, I'll show you a text. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is actually the way Paul did ministry, kind of in general. There are some folks mad at Paul. So Paul comes along and he says, look, I have the right. If I want to be married, I have every right to be married. But Paul's approach to evangelism, as you go down in chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, is, you can sum it up this way, verse 20. 
To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though uh, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law, uh, but God under the law in Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that I might by all means gain some. Paul says, I stepped into their shoes. I looked at life through their eyes, through their lens. Now, the last conflict you were in, did you ever stop to consider, what if I only had the information they have? What if I've only experienced the things they've experienced? What if I only knew what they know about this situation now? And it's amazing when you stop to consider in conflict someone else's view of things, how radically different things become. There's a famous author some of you guys have heard of named Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey wrote the famous Seven Habits of Highly Effective People several years ago. But he told this story, and this really puts it in context. He says, one Sunday morning on a subway in New York, people were sitting quietly. Some were reading their newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was calm and peaceful until a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were loud, rambunctious, and instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the entire situation, His children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet the man sitting next to me did absolutely nothing about his children. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I couldn't believe that he could be so insensitive to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated. So finally... With what I felt was an unusual patience and restraint. I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. And the man lifted up his eyes, thought for a second and said, You're right. I guess I should do something about it. We were just at the hospital where their mother died an hour ago, and I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Have you ever stopped to consider the other person's perception? Where the other person is at in any conflict? So think about how this works. If you only knew what they knew, if you'd only experienced what they experienced, if you were in the situation as they are, would you react any differently? So the waiter who got your order wrong may be on his or her second shift after a sleepless night with a sick child, or the colleague at work that can't get there on time, can't work while they're there, or constantly leaves early, never getting their job done, maybe do every, maybe doing everything they can to hold their marriage together. Or they might be taking advantage of everybody. That's possible. But until you know... You may want to try to look at things through their perception. And it's amazing what that does when you're trying to work through conflict.
is kind of fun. I, I kind of like this. This is good. Um, so my second point, uh, second technique for practical peacemaking is to bring the fight to a point. Um, one of the first church fights that are ever recorded is in Acts chapter 6. And we have this, in those days the number of the disciples were increasing. The Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek-speaking Jews among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews, the Jews that spoke only Aramaic, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so right there at the very beginning, God is doing this amazing thing uh, in Jerusalem in the aftermath of the ministry of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. The day of Pentecost has happened. People's lives are changing. And yet you've got this conflict. How are you going to fix that? What's going to happen? Now, the prejudice between the Jews who no longer lived in Palestine and no longer could even speak Hebrew or Aramaic anymore, they spoke Greek like most people did around the Mediterranean world. Uh, they, they always, when they came back to Jerusalem, kind of felt like second-class citizens. And oddly enough, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem felt a little bit like country cousins because here these Jews have been out and they've experienced the wider world and they've seen other cultures and we're back here in the homeland and we don't know what that's like. And so both groups had anger at each other and kind of long built-up resentments. What if the apostles had just said, I know what we can do. Let's have a big church meeting and have the airing of grievances. The first Festivus. Everyone will have a chance to, to say what it is that, and to get everything off their chest. How would that have worked? What would be wrong with that as a plan for peacemaking? You're allowed to talk. Go ahead. You tell me. Too many issues. That's right. We'd be going back, you know, well, when my grandfather came to Jerusalem, he was treated like, and I remember the time when you kind of gave me the stink eye. When I, you know, and, and all of this other stuff could be what that discussion was about, right? What are the odds of getting to peace in that circumstance? Almost zero. Feelings are going to get to it. People only have a limited well here of, of, of the ability to get past these things. And so if you handle it that way, just it's a wide-ranging discussion of everything that's been wrong in the past, uh, all of that might even be true. It doesn't really matter. It's just too dispersed to get anything done. And so one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about making peace is bring the fight to a point. <laughs> Try to figure out what the real point is of contention, the real point of conflict. And, and I think by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that's what the apostles did. They figured out what's going on, and they came up with a really good solution for it. They said, let's focus on a specific behavior that's happening. Even the way Luke tells us the story says that it focused on a specific behavior. And the very best thing you can do when you're in a conflict with somebody or when you're trying to intervene in a conflict, which is always risky, is to figure out what's the behavior 
that is the most important thing to address in this circumstance. What, what is somebody doing or what are two or three people doing that are causing the difficulty and, and need can be fixed? In the case of the Jerusalem church, there were people who were, you know, I'm sure it was pretty haphazard and I doubt it was intentional, but it's just that a certain group had been overlooked. That's a behavior. Once you identify it, once you bring the conflict to a point, then you can do something about it. And the, and the church did. And the aftermath is they, they end up appointing seven people. All of them look like they're from the aggrieved side of this dispute. They all look like they're from the Greek-speaking side and uh, by their names. This proposal pleased the whole group They chose all these people, so the word of God spread, verse 7 says, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So it's easy when we're in a conflict to just bring up everything and to try to talk through all the issues at once, but you're going to have more luck if we bring the conflict, bring the fight to a, a specific point of behavior that can change. All right, thank you. Okay, third sermon or point, however you frame it. Uh, fourth, Bill says four. Neither of us, you went first, neither of us majored in math. So, Okay, uh, turn your Bible over to the book of Philippians. This is, in some circles, what we call uh, the bod rule, the bod rule of conflict, which is benefit of the doubt. You ever been in a conflict where someone automatically assumes the worst in your shoes? Now, in my mar- this has saved my marriage a number of times. I didn't get permission for this, but it's okay. It's okay. When we first got married, uh, and I would be late, which is it, I, I'm late coming home in the evenings lots of times. It's a call on the way out, and. My 30 minutes, I'll be home, turns into an hour or so. When we first got married, I would hit the door, and Delina would say, You're okay. Yeah. I thought you had been in a wreck, and you were laying on the side of the road dead or something. Now it has evolved into, it's a good thing I trust you. (laughs) You know? I mean, we've come a long way. But in both cases... She gives me the benefit of the doubt, and I'm extremely grateful. But think about it. How many times has someone accused you, well, you're just ignoring my phone call? No, my battery's dead. My phone doesn't work anymore. When you immediately assume the worst in someone, you've started conflict in a way that's hard to get your footing. And this is actually something you find in Scripture. Philippians is such an interesting book because this church is having some conflict. And there are two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know the problem, but when, when you're called out by an inspired, inspired writer of Scripture, you've done something. And Euodia and Syntyche have done something, and there's conflict in the church. And I want to show you something that was pointed out to me by, uh, it was actually Kurt Nickham years ago. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. We've heard this text a number of times. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And we've often read that text of Scripture kind of in isolation. Go around thinking about what's honorable and true and peaceful and and just be happy-minded people. And Kurt Nickham says, don't take it out of its context. In its context, he's talking about two ladies who are fighting with each other. And he says, you look at Euodia, Syntyche, and Syntyche, you look at Euodia, or Syntyche, look at each other. (laughs) Look at each other and think about what can I find that is true and honorable and pure in the other person? Now, in, in conflict, we tend to do the opposite, don't we? As we're in conflict, we try to think, what can I say that proves them to be a liar or proves them to be unclean or proves them to be wrong? And Paul says, no, 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 no. Why don't you two ladies practice this? What's true about what they're saying? What is actually honorable about what they're, they're aiming for here? And I think as you read this text, in that context, that's pretty good advice for dealing with conflict and how to bring about peace. Now, there's another text that you know that this is actually in. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul is talking about love, love is patient, love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, rejoices in the truth, love bears all things, listen to this, believes all things. A famous New Testament scholar by the name of Leon Morris said, this means to see the best in others. This does not mean love is gullible, but that it does not think the worse, as is the way of the world. It retains its faith. Love is not deceived, but it is always ready to give the benefit of the doubt. So think about this, the practical application in making peace. We don't try to demonize the person with whom there is conflict. We don't assume the worst, and we always look to see, maybe it's me that's wrong about this. Maybe I'm the one that needs to rephrase and rethink what I'm doing. Scroll, you know. Every time that you try to type anything into Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, that passage scrolls. Whatever's noble, whatever's pure. Wouldn't that be great? That is awesome, Jeremy. Thank you. My last point, uh, mini-sermon, is tell the truth assertively, not aggressively. So if you, you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody, this is especially true with, you know, relationships that we're, uh, with our family, wives, husbands, parents, children, all of that. So when you're in a relationship with somebody, it's never 100% smooth. I mean, there are always things that need to be adjusted. Uh, You would like it to be perfect and nobody ever has to say anything, but 
But there are always things that just don't quite work. This person's doing this, or this person's not doing that. And, and that needs to be talked about. And a lot of the anger in relationships comes from stuff that probably needs to be talked about. We need to bring this conflict to a point. We need to get at the behavior that's irritating or whatever. Um, not being talked about. And it builds up over time. It kind of toxifies over time and so forth. So telling the truth that needs to be told assertively but not aggressively. I think about the way Jesus handled the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I don't have time to read the whole thing because this is a mini sermon, not a full sermon. But, But, you know, think about the way in which that could have easily turned ugly. And there were a couple of times when she looked like she was going there in dealing with Jesus. Why do you, a Jew, talk to me? You know, why, would, why are you having this conversation? Oh, well, give me this water so I don't have to make this trip out to the well every day. Uh, you know, it looks a couple of times that that's where she's going. And it's interesting, Jesus never backs down from addressing what needs to be addressed with her, but he never does it to hurt her. He never is aggressive about it. I just, I think that can be a, a model for us as we try to make peace in the things uh, that go on in our life. I actually think in any relationship, there are times when you need to tell the other person, you know, this is hurting my feelings. This is making my life difficult. They need that information, but the way you say it may make it impossible for them to hear it. Uh, And so saying it assertively in a way that's not aggressive can actually make it possible for them to hear information that they really need. This behavior, it would be better if this could change, or at least it would be better if we could talk about it and negotiate it out. Uh, So being able to do that. To get to that point, there are kind of two ugly ditches on either side of the path to that. One side of the road, there is the side where I just don't don't say what needs to be said. I may chicken out. I may just say, well, I just don't want to, I don't want to address this right now. And, uh, you know, it's not that bad. I'll just put up with it, you know. And maybe it isn't that bad, and maybe you can put up with it, but... If you've, if you've already started feeling the toxification, the anger, and the resentment, then maybe you do need to say something about it. Uh, there's kind of the mind reader approach to this. Well, if I said that, then they would say this, and then I would say this, and they would say... And you, re, you play the whole scenario out in your head and reach a conclusion. And then they would do this, and I, know, I, just, I just don't want to bother. I just don't want to bother. I already know how they're going to react. So I'm not going to bother to try and make this situation better by, by saying the truth. Well, sometimes you do have a pretty good idea of how they're going to react, but sometimes you're wrong about that. And giving somebody the benefit of the doubt means you're going to try to make an effort and see if we can't make things better. So that's one side where I just, for whatever reason, I won't say what needs to be said. The other side, the other ugly ditch on the opposite side is I say what I say for the purpose of causing you pain rather than getting the situation resolved. I weaponize my words in the conflict. And I've been guilty of that and 
we can have a show of hands to see if anybody in here has never been guilty of that. But I think I know how that would go. Uh, and lying is a sin. So I think I know how that would go. Um, <laughs> this is when, and this often happens, especially in an intimate relationship, family relationship or close working relationship, where things have been going on for a while. And we've had some toxicity built up and some anger and resentment and pain built up. And then when the conversation finally happens, whatever triggers it, the first thing I feel like doing is really unloading, right? I want you to feel some of the pain that I've been feeling. I want to weaponize my words in such a way that I can get some of the pain out of me and into you. Because you kind of deserve it. Uh, because I've been feeling this for a long time, and I just want to say it. And so this is when you'll get people really exaggerating sometimes, really falsifying the record sometimes, whatever it takes to win. This is when you'll get people saying things that are just designed to hurt. If I talk to you about something that you did five years ago that neither of us have any power to go back and fix, and it was bad what you did, but you can't fix it, I can't fix it, nothing can make that better, and I know it's humiliating to you for me to bring it up, and I bring it up anyway, why am I doing that? Because I want you to hurt, right? Well, if I do that, that's likely to be the end of the conversation, at least a productive part of that conversation. If I bring up, you know, physical characteristics of you that you can't fix or change, if I bring up past humiliations that you've shared with me. If I do those kinds of things, that's not going to help us get to the resolution, the point, which is this behavior could actually make our relationship better if we could negotiate better with it. And so uh, I like seeing what the way Jesus, again and again, he just kind of brings it back to, here's what's going on in your life, and here's what could be better. And here's what I want to talk about. And I, and, and I think all of us could m act more like that uh, tell the truth that needs to be told. Tell it assertively. Don't back down from it, but not aggressively. Not in a way that's designed to hurt. Poppy, you had something. Say what? Oh, you're, you're giving us the seventh sermon? All right, blame Hoppy now. That's good. There you go. That's a, that, that'd be a good one, too. All right. Well, anyway, that's kind of the end of my points. Uh, try to say what needs to be said, bringing the fight to the point. Br say what needs to be said, saying it in a way that is assertive, gets it said, but doesn't aim to hurt, doesn't aim to cause damage. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks, Jim. Those are helpful. We... We coordinated to the extent that I said, hey, why don't you bring three things to the table? I'll bring three things to together, and we'll kind of go back and forth. This is where we landed, and I think it's very helpful. Helpful stuff, Jim. Thank you. Okay, I have one more. This is number seven. This is number seven. And I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll warn you, you're not going to like this one. This may be your least favorite. Uh, turn your Bible over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
I recently heard a story of a little girl who came home from playing outside with her friends. She was uh, skinned up, scratched. She'd been in a fight with her friends. Her mother patched her up and asked her, what happened? She said, well, we, we got in a fight. And her mother said, well, what were you fighting about? And the little girl said, they said my imaginary friend was short. <laughs> Here's the last piece of advice from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This church was extremely divided. There were conflicts left and right. You name it, they were finding a way to fight about it. It had gotten so bad in Corinth that there were brothers and sisters suing each other. And Paul, kind of to the point, he says, now wait a minute, you guys have been bragging about how spiritual you are. You have spiritual gifts, you're wise, you're godly people, and you look down on other people. If you're so wise and you're so spiritual... Why can't you settle this problem? Why are you taking each other before a non-believing judge to settle your case? And then Paul offers what he thinks might help the conflict. Chapter 6, verse 7. You have lawsuits with one another. It's already defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here's Paul's advice. Sometimes the best way and only way to peace is just to accept the loss. We could put it other ways. Pick your battles better. Not everything is worth the time and the energy that is spent in conflict. And we spend a lot of our time fighting for my right and my, uh, what, what belongs to me, and, but that person is wrong. And i got to stand up for what's the right thing to do. And Paul's, Paul doesn't necessarily dismiss the problem, but he says, you know, one of you could just accept the wrong. Not every fight is worth taking to the nth degree. Now, in full disclosure, this wasn't the only way Paul handled conflict. When you get to, when you get to Philippi, Paul and Silas have been put in prison. They've been beaten. And when they find out they're Roman soldiers, uh, they're Roman citizens, uh, the government says, well, let's just let them out at night and not tell anybody. And Paul says, I will not go quietly in the night. You come and you escort me out because you have violated my Roman citizenship. So needless to say, this isn't the only approach Paul has. (laughs) But think about some of the silly things we argue about. And some of the things that we let shatter peace that aren't worth the energy. I was doing premarital counseling with a couple And one of the things I try to do with couples when they're going to get married is try to watch them fight. You know, just to see how they handle conflict. And so I'll ask them, tell me about the last uh, conflict you had. There was a couple, it was funny. Well, we, uh, we, we had this discussion about whether when we get married, the dog can sleep in the bed. 
I said, how'd that turn out? And then for the next 45 minutes, I said nothing, and I watched them disagree on what they had concluded. It was hilarious. That's sad, isn't it? <laughs> you can watch, you can learn a lot about people by just watching them in conflict. But then at the end of the day, they started laughing and saying, would you believe we've spent two weeks arguing about this topic? Now, what is the craziest, silliest, most meaningless thing that you've seen be in conflict of recent? Careful, Jim. <laughs> You see in the news, someone shot their son over a disagreement of the Super Bowl. Really? Was it worth that? Now, that's obviously an extreme case. But Paul says, you know, sometimes just cut your losses. Sometimes just accept wrong and go on. That is not necessarily the American way to do it because we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights and if you violate them, I'll sue you. Paul wasn't a 21st century American. Why don't one of you just accept the wrong? Be defrauded. There's a bigger battle to be won. And actually, this is a principle Paul applies in other places. You keep going in chapters... Uh, 14 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, and, and someone says, it's wrong for you to eat meat. Paul says, well, it's really not. I could eat meat if I wanted to eat meat, but you know what? It's not worth the fight. You are more important than my right to eat meat. And so he says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's interesting, there are two different Greek words. He says, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I won't even touch food as long as the world stands. We have to pick our battles carefully. Look, if, if it involves injustice and abuse and harm of the innocent and the outcast, that is not a time to cut our losses and be quiet. But if there are other things we should save our credibility and time for, Paul says, yeah, yeah, it really is. Told you, you may not like that one because we don't like to be wrong. We don't like to give up when we think we're the ones in the right, but sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. And for Paul, in the book of Corinthians, there is especially a reason he offers that solution because that's exactly how Jesus lived his life. Isn't it the story of Jesus that he had every right to take out vengeance and judgment on the people who nailed him to the cross. But what did he do? He allowed himself to be defrauded. And throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has said, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And on page after page, every problem they're having in Corinth, Paul somehow finds a way to see a solution in imitating the cross of Jesus. And so if, if you're taking your brother or sister to court, I've got an idea, Paul says, why don't one of you imitate Jesus and see what happens next? 
Now, I remind you of what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. If possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace. Paul knew it's not always possible, and Paul knew that people look for conflict. There are people in your life like that. If they didn't have the conflict, they wouldn't know what to do. If they weren't fighting with someone, they wouldn't know what to say. Paul says, don't be that kind of person. At the end of the day, when everything's said and done, let it be said of you, let it be said of me, let it be said of all God's people that we did everything we could to be an agent of peace. That's what God calls us to. And that's the story of the cross of Jesus. So we offer the invitation in the name of Jesus, who Paul said is our peace before God and who calls us to carry out his peace to the world around us. If we can help you come to Jesus, if we can help you with the need that you have tonight, we invite you to come while we stand and sing together.